0: Hi, I'm Zachary Davis. I'm the host of two podcasts, Ministry of Ideas, which explores the philosophy behind everyday concepts, and Writ Large, a new podcast about the books that change the world. I love educational podcasts. I love listening to them and talking about them. I want everyone to have that chance, and so I've built a new platform called Lyceum, which makes it easy to discover great educational podcasts and have conversations about them. There are more than a million podcasts out there, we've done the hard work of sifting through them and finding only the very best education shows to listen to. Shows like the one you're listening to right now. So if you love learning, download Lyceum today on the App Store or Google Play or visit us at lyceum.fm. That's
1: L-Y-C-E-U-M dot F-M. On the northwest side of campus, you'll find Notre Dame's most prominent natural features. They're called St. Mary's Lake and St. Joseph's Lake. Trails surround each lake. Both are about a mile in length and make for some of the most picturesque walking and running on any college campus. The lakes have always represented the primary way in which Notre Dame is connected to the land. And not just for recreation. The marl at the bottom of the lakes was dredged in the 1870s and 80s and formed into bricks that built Notre Dame's most famous buildings. And during normal times... A beautiful spring day in late April would see these paths bustling with members of the Notre Dame community. Today, with campus vacant, the only creatures here are the birds. The quiet of the space is a reminder of what happens when people are taken out of the equation. Here, the impact is innocuous. It's mostly visible in the squirrel who tarries a little longer on a path devoid of foot traffic. On a different scale, removing humankind from the equation can be disturbingly illuminating. And as the novel coronavirus pandemic drags on, the halt of human activity is already being noticed. Jason.
0: Hey, Andy, how you doing?
1: Doing fine. How are you? Good. Jason McLaughlin is a paleoecologist who studies climate change. In recent weeks, he's observed the connection of humankind to the planet.
0: The short-term thing is interesting, and it really does show you the linkage between humanity and the way the whole planet works. So there's these um, satellite images from NASA. You know, they use satellites to monitor, like, pollution. Uh, mm-hmm. like, um, Knox, uh, like nitrous oxide, um, is a pollutant that comes from burning fossil fuels, but especially from transportation. And, um, I can send you a link if you want, but sure. there's these amazing images, uh, from space of China before and after they shut down. And it's really striking. Like you can see this epidemic from space. <laughs> Literally, you can see like just the halt of human activity, um, and then, and that will have a an impact on uh, greenhouse gas emissions, just the way it has uh, on other pollutants, right? So there's like a pause. So, so you know, the tricky thing about climate change is that there's a whole lot of interconnected parts. But it's very clear that, um, you know, pausing the global economy uh, will uh, slow down emissions. That's not at all the right way to slow down emissions <laughs> <laughs> but it will be noticeable and people will be able to measure it you know and people will be able to assess you know how many you know uh, less parts per million of co2 we have because of this uh, of this change and and that 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 I mean there's some parts of global warming uh, of the of the processes that lead to global warming that might not be affected by the epidemic right so co2 is really primarily A function of fossil fuel burning but it's also a function of like forest fires and stuff and so those might go on as scheduled right Um, (laughs) and uh, um, yeah so so that's the that's the short-term thing that's sort of catching people's attention and you could think of it as a silver lining but I tend to think of it as basically really the message is not well there's some good things like at least we're not polluting as much as we used to that's one way to put it but what I think of it is amazing visual picture of how much the way the whole planet function is tied to the way our species and our economy functions. Right. And it's sort of, you know, there's always this question about how much can we, this one, you know, species like influence the whole planet. It's amazing how, how and you can see it in even these short-term things like what's happening with this epidemic.
1: Um, so you are a, um, a paleoecologist, uh, mm-hmm. which tells me that you deal with time frames beyond maybe a couple of months. Uh, and so uh, I'm wondering if, um, do you have a sense of, you know, we, we've seen kind of this rolling shutdown of the global economy, starting with China and then kind of working its way to to the U.S. and other countries. That shutdown um, and the resulting uh, reduction in CO2 emissions how much uh, long-term benefit will there be uh, to the environment, um, given that it's only been a few months?
0: It will be. So, so a good example of this is sort of moving to that sort of medium-term interval, which, is, which, which may last longer than our direct response to the epidemic. So if the economy takes a downturn, as it seems uh, inevitable, we don't know how long it'll last we hope we'll come out of it um, uh, you know in short order but it might you know in 2008 when we had a downturn it lasted a few years and that and that period reduced global co2 emissions by 10% which is a lot that 10% though got made up when the for when the economy came back mm. so as uh, and so i don't so it's so you can It's a a slightly, really, when you think about um, greenhouse gas concentrations, you're imagining a process that's moving all the time. So there's always fluxes of CO2 coming into the atmosphere and there's always fluxes going out. If the the flux going in slows down a little bit, but then ramps back up, you might, the, the overall concentration in the atmosphere may drop a little bit, but it'll come back up. It really, and really all we're doing is uh, even under um, the most severe uh, uh, scenarios, is we're changing the rate at which we're, we're at, at which we're increasing CO two concentrations. So um, it's a benefit. It's a plus. It's a silver lining. It means that we have, you know, slightly less long term downside. Um, but to me, the real lessons come from uh, from the long term perspective because. If we, A, we're not going to solve global warming by having repeated recessions, right. <laughs> and B, and B um, we, when we recover from an economy, the economy is different, society is different, culture is different, politics is different, and we realize, in fact, even just in this thing that we've been forced to do for the last few weeks, we realize that we can do things in really different ways you know, you and I are having this conversation on Zoom, which we probably would have not done beforehand. Uh, so a lot of times, you know, sort of global crises lead to changes in the way people see our connectivity, see the way we can interact with each other, and and they definitely affect the economy. So, um, So if a lesson that came out of this was we are capable as a global society of Working in tandem to deal with crises, and that we can come out the other side of this, and it's not, you know, um, and and you know, I anticipate as this epidemic ends, we're going to learn a lot. We're definitely not going to view disease the same way, mm. and 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 we're certainly not going to view Zoom and Amazon the same way. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, uh, so it's not. There's no. There's no guarantee, right? So when crises happen, sometimes people take that as a, as a lesson to sort of retreat, put up walls to defend ourselves from bad things. And that that would hinder sort of the kind of international collaboration that would take to deal with this. But it doesn't always go that way. The politics that came up around climate change just reinforced all the other political divisions and made it very difficult to move in any direction. In this country, not in other countries, most, most countries have moved you know, conservatives have been able to move as easy as liberals on this. But here, I think that um, that has not been true. Um, And so so I hope that rethinking political alignments or cultural alignments or how we view each other, you know, I mean, a, a nice thing like on a personal level that's come out of this crisis is that when you pass someone on the sidewalk, you give them the thumbs up, like it's been, it really does sort of bind us together with real kindness. Hmm. And that, I mean, I think that, 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 you know, people are worried about, you know, people in Italy or people in Iran or, you know, everywhere where the crisis is, is taking off. So it could, there's a couple of ways that, and, and certainly this is outside of my, my realm, right? I'm a scientist, but, but that the solution to global warming is going to be bending the curve, flattening the curve on emissions, just like we flattened the curve on the epidemic, right? We may emit the same amount of CO2, but we got to do it over a longer time. Okay. And, and that, and even, you know, the other thing is that we don't have to, like, like really to save the planet, uh, we, we need to slow things down. We don't need to stop, right? It doesn't have to be zero emissions we're capable of slowing things down in a lot of ways that would be good for people, good for the planet, good for the economy. So I think that some of those options may look a little bit more feasible if you're redesigning the way that the economy works and the way that business works, and the way people interact with each
1: other. You know, we didn't move on coronavirus until we saw the impact, right? Right. It was right in front of us. Um, At the same time, you could argue we are seeing the impact of climate change, um, and so I guess maybe my question is, does it have to get worse?
0: I, I really, I, I think a shock helps uh, like forest fires in California fires in Australia, you know, make people see the extent to it, uh, to which this is, uh, 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 you know, not normal. Those things are, uh, you know, there's a lot of people who are, most people are already on board um in terms of the issue um, the solutions are get kind of stuck but um, and the urgency of it gets stuck the the thing is the, 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 the trick comes when people ask for costly uh, solutions mm. and so I'm actually kind of been quite interested in seeing the steps that people are taking that are not costly that get people on board so for instance uh, Mike Brown, the, uh, the, the Senator from Indiana has been pushing for, um, uh, reforestation and putting, you know, getting, getting more trees, right. Taking carbon out of the atmosphere and putting it in trees. Now, this is definitely in my wheelhouse because I, I work on trees and I work on, you know, their contribution to the carbon cycle and I can see, um, uh, that being a part of the solution. Um, there's, pros and cons, and there's uh, certainly not enough, but but, but that's something that I think you might not have heard from a Republican senator from Indiana even just a, a little while ago. Mm. So I think that there are, and actually I have a former grad student who's a staffer on uh, Capitol Hill, and she talks to people um, who you would think wouldn't have a lot of um, concern about global warming, and they all do. They're trying to figure out a way that works that that is consistent with their values and that doesn't undermine the economy. So I'm, I'm really a fan of taking small steps early and getting some consensus and building towards bigger things later.
1: So starting with consensus, but realize with, you know, maybe smaller steps, but realizing it will take some bigger things. And, uh, maybe just to draw one more parallel, what's the, uh, I think at the start of coronavirus, the the now famous Dr. Fauci and others said the best case scenario would be for everyone to think we overreacted.
0: And so you can know that intellectually, but when you, but there's always, you know, um, the Monday morning quarterbacking and you're like, ah, it wasn't so bad. People are going to say that about this virus for sure. Yeah. They're going to like, you, you, and he was like, remember what it was like? And they're <laughs> like, oh, but you know, you can, so, so I think that that. You, that there's a certain amount of that, no matter what. Um, preparing, we, prepa- we prepare all the time and spend money for things that may not happen or to defer stuff, right? Every, you know, I mean, it would be, you know, Notre Dame would have liability problems if they didn't anticipate, if they didn't maintain the university, anticipate problems, you know, proactively address things. That's, that's what we do. We're good at that. So this isn't really different from that. Um, uh, And so I think that, and the other thing is that the choices we make, the changes we make look a lot easier in the rearview mirror than they do up front.
1: Much better to question what you did than wonder why you didn't do anything. Right. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Well, especially when it's like a generational thing. Like I really think that, the inability of this generation, my generation, to address this global problem will be looked back on by future generations with scorn and bewilderment. You know, there's there's periods of, of world history where you look back on those guys and you're like, what were they doing?
1: <laughs> and I don't wanna be those guys, you know? <laughs> We'll be back with a look at another crucial connection, that between doctor and patient, after the break. With a Side of Knowledge is a podcast from Notre Dame that
0: embodies a simple guiding principle. Everything's better with brunch. Our show features informal conversations between host Ted Fox, that's me, and all manner of scholars, makers, and professionals from both the university and elsewhere. We record each episode over a meal or coffee, ambient noise and all. You can find With a Side of Knowledge at provost.nd.edu
1: slash podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. For most of us these days, watching the news can be exhausting. It seems there isn't a lot to smile about these days. And yet, most of us are experiencing the pandemic through a screen at home. We sit in quarantine, working remotely, flipping on the news for as long as we can before streaming something else or finding another activity to keep our minds occupied. Others of us are still working, of course, at places that have taken on new significance, grocery stores, gas stations, the post office. But for a select group, the pandemic couldn't be more front and center. Healthcare workers have seen the worst the virus can do. They've been there, as people fade away. And they've celebrated each recovery. How do they keep on? Good morning. Dom, how are you?
2: I'm good. How are you?
1: To explore this, we turned to Dominic Vashan, the John G. Sheedy Director of the Ruth M. Hillebrand Center for Compassionate Care and Medicine at the university. And so what I wanted to get a, a sense of is... Um, you know, what enables medical professionals to operate during times like these? I think sometimes mm-hmm. we hear first responders say, well, you know, the training took over, and I'm sure that's that's part of it. But I think yes. you say, you call it uh, something called the compassion mindset. And, and what, what does that mean?
2: Well, Andy, you know, first of all, we're, as human beings, we're built for compassion. Uh, and so what we know especially recently with the neuroscience of compassion um, is that we human beings are built for compassion and when we don't operate out of a compassionate place there's actually something that went wrong in us Hmm. and uh, healthcare professionals basically um, are tapping right into that part of us that part of us that when we when we see suffering Uh, we're moved to want to respond to that. Mm. And so with healthcare professionals, that compassionate machinery, deeply engaged, but in a much more intense and constant way. And so when you hear expressions like the training takes over, uh, what that means is that person has trained their minds to be able to give their skills in a very emotionally intense situation. But the amazing thing is they're not emotionally detached when they do it. Mm. They might use the phrase, uh, well, I just emotionally detach. But I've spent a long time studying this and being part of this myself. And we use that phrase, but it's not really what's going on. What's really going on is that your mind has been trained to respond under stress and to give your very best skills in that process, not unlike a parent who just you know hears their baby cry, and they just respond. They you know it's just uh, that's a very that's the circuit that's how we're built. That mm-hmm. kind of thing.
1: How do you how do you cultivate that uh, for students? Because that that all makes sense. I just yes I just hear that, and I I wonder if I would be able to um, act in the, in the same way, but given the proper training, maybe that's more likely. So how do you, how do you instill that, that training?
2: Well, the word you used is exactly the one like, it's really like anything else that we Mm do. Um, you train like the work you do, you know, there's a training that you do that led to you being able to do this so well. Um, so for people who are in this, part of it is, um, they feel this as a call, um and so they want to do it and then like any other call you get in there and you're like going how am I going to do this uh because your desire to respond and be there for other people uh, is strong and then that's when you start getting trained and people give you the scientific information and then um and then help you uh, learn how to apply that scientific information in very messy situations. Mm. You know, so when you have kind of a pure science, you, everything is very neat. You've got uh, clear randomized control trials and that kind of thing. And you're now taking that and saying, how do I apply this in a situation where I don't know everything that I would like to know to help this person? And how do I do that under pressure? And so the, the training is actually rather long, uh, you know, for physicians, it's very long for nurses. It is for therapists, uh, counselors, um, you know, there's a, a lot of training that goes into that. A big part of that training is, at, uh, um, is when they start working with patients, uh, if you are fortunate enough to have good teachers who are not only teaching you how to, um, uh, uh, make good decisions in your clinical judgment, but also how to manage what's going on inside you, the thoughts and the feelings that you're going to have when you're working in these situations. Uh, that's how you get trained to do that.
1: Does the, um, the compassion mindset have a breaking point? I mean, is there a point at which um, even the most uh, compassionate could lose his or her zeal, or does the training sort of guard against that to a degree?
2: Well, certainly uh, the training helps you uh, last a lot longer. If you Mm -hmm. didn't have the training, and if you had a sentimental notion of compassionate caring, you're not going to last very long. So if you think that compassion is just a sentimental, um, uh, warm uh, thing, you know, a lot of people— even in medicine, think that compassion is uh, a sentimental thing and that it actually interferes with your judgment. What we know about is that true compassion actually makes you extremely effective. And, and breaking point is an interesting word. You know, I'm thinking of error Parsegian. We have no breaking point, you know, <laughs> and I've, I've reflected on what he meant by that. And, uh, and breaking point, You know, I mean, on one hand, uh, yes, there's a breaking point in the sense of this is work. This is hard, emotional and cognitive work. And so just like a marathon or climbing a mountain or any other hard thing that you do physically, it's work. And so there's a point at which you would go, I got to stop. I can't go on any further. Uh, I've got to rest. So. Uh, in in that sense, I wouldn't. Breaking point would be too dramatic a word. Okay. It would be like, hey, you got to notice what's going on, and, and you got to you you got to back off here. You got to take some time. Number one, to listen to what's going on in your body, in your mind, in your spirit, and catch up with yourself. Take care of yourself, because if you don't take care of yourself, it's going to be very hard to take care of others. So so when you get that breaking point. Uh, you know that in yourself, you go, Hey, wait a second. I'm, you know, like, you know, I went through this about 26 years ago where I came home and said to my wife, I hate my patients. Mm. I hate my patients. And I had, I had been doing research on empathy and burnout and how empathy was related to less burnout. And then I'm coming home and I'm saying, I hate my patients. And you know, my wife says to me, well, honey, you've got a problem mm. because if you hate your patients, they need you to love them. And if you don't love them, they're not going to get better. Um, and so what happens for most people in, in this profession is they'll they'll notice that. They'll take the time to grieve. You know, this is grieving. You know, when you witness what you do, even though you get to do this amazing thing for other people, it's still hard. It's work. It's emotional work. There's a grieving involved. And then you process that either internally or with others. You get perspective again. And usually what happens is that compassion just re-energizes again, and you're ready to go right back in.
1: I would love your take on what, we're, what you're seeing right now.
2: Right now we're seeing compassion in its awesomeness and also its agony. So we're, we're listening to people uh, every day Uh, talk about going in there and not turning away, Uh, being worried about themselves, but being able to go, uh, this is what I'm built for. This is what I do. This is what I did before COVID-19. This is what I do now. But on the other hand, there is a great agony in this because um, healthcare uh, workers are talking about the sheer volume. You know, sometimes people talk about healthcare workers as kind of uh, like victims in it, Uh, but healthcare workers don't really think of themselves as victims. They think of themselves as, I was built for this. This is what I do. There's suffering out there. I'm going to it. Uh, But what gets people in healthcare and other places upset is, we don't have what we need to do this. How Mm -hmm. did this happen? You know, uh, and so that uh, frustration is... Really apparent, you know, like when we hear like the protesters blocking the way and healthcare workers can't get to the hospital, or they don't have enough PPE, or they ha- they are aware of these organizational systemic decisions that have increased the suffering. That just fires people up even more, you know. So, um, but um, but they're fired up to to do this, but it does, it is hard, it is work, it is agony, uh, and it's also scary. Uh, because um, you're helping other people, Um, you're scared maybe for yourself, you're scared to go home, and are you going to infect people at home? That's what's very, very uh, unique and unusual about this COVID-19 is uh, that's a factor that's always on your mind. And so you go home and you get anxious, you know, about everything that you saw and uh, and what might happen. The other thing is, um, you're witnessing people who are, you know, suffering and dying without their loved ones there. Right. And you're the one who's there and, um, you'd like to do more and you want, and, and clinicians are, are, you know, part of the agony is they wanted to do more. They, uh, They agonize over every death, every setback, Um, uh, but this is because they are deeply in a compassion mindset. This is what they do.
1: So it's not so much the volume of caring for um, an increased number of patients with this thing Mm -hmm. uh, that could lead to burnout um, as much as not being able to care because of no PPE, because of other barriers in place.
2: Yeah. Well said. Okay. Yeah. It, 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 definitely is volume. Uh, but you're absolutely right. You know, um, uh, these individuals who are working in ICUs and emergency rooms and nursing homes, these, these individuals have been doing this way before COVID-19 happened. Mm. You know, they have been going through really hard things and accompanying patients and their loved ones way before COVID-19. Uh, and this was happening before COVID-19, but we can really see it now. In fact, all of us can see it because the media is really showing us this and healthcare workers are telling this to us. It's like, we don't have what we need to do this or, you know, uh, please, uh, stay home so we can have less of this. You you know, you can really see, uh, that systemically they're like going, we got to have certain things in place to do this. Um, and, and, a big thing that uh, I think a lot of people are going to become aware of is how precious the, the intrinsic motivation to help other people is. Mm-hmm. I think there's a way that we've treated healthcare clinicians, workers, and also people in other professions. We've taken that, that uh, intrinsic desire to care for other people for granted, and it's kind of a replaceable commodity. It's like, oh, let's go get another, you know, well, that doctor burned out. Let's go get another one. Uh, uh, how, how hard it can it be to go get another nurse who really cares or another therapist who really cares or another CNA who really cares? And, and part of what we're really, I think, going to be uh, become more aware of is how precious it is to have these people who are doing this not out of a sense of duty. They're doing this because they really care. Now, certainly, there are people in healthcare and other professions who do it out of duty or who are uh, motivated by self interest in some way. Certainly, that's there. Uh, but uh, what we're seeing day in and day out are people who really do care and who really are taking risks. They're not being stupid in those risks, but they are taking risks and they are they know that they feel it and they work through that. Uh, But how precious that is. And I think there's probably a reawakening of appreciation for how, you know, people who really care aren't commodities. Mm. We got to take care of them. We've got to support them. We've got to nurture them. And going back to something you said earlier, we, uh, I think there's a way in which our culture uh, says, wow! Compassion is the core of who we are. How do we cultivate this so that we get more people who want to do this? But not just people in healthcare. Our whole society, mm-hmm. where we really care for each other, and and you know, actually, Andy, we're really seeing that as it is. I mean, we're seeing people who aren't healthcare people, but who are going, "What can I do about this?" And either in their homes in their circles whatever they are they are doing things that are right out of this compassion mindset as well so i think there's a way in which that's being reawakened in us Mm. all of us uh, and i'm hoping uh that it becomes a a re-energizing of all the professions uh all the things that people do to care for each other like the frontline workers the farmers the cna and and cnas and the nursing homes that this desire to uh to do things out of a true care for others that's going to become a value that is reawakened and and i'm thinking it's going to challenge us to really think about what really matters in life Uh, and that what really matters is Not our own self-interest, but how can we make the world a better place? And, you know, it's an amazing thing that everybody in the world is going through this at the same time. And all of us are really confronting ourselves, whether we're working on the front lines or we have to stay at home. We have to we're really facing ourselves. And so uh, we're coming face to face with our our flaws in our individual problems are systemic problems and then we're also coming face to face with strengths that we didn't know we had and so i think there's a way in which all of us uh, all at once are uh have this invitation to really look at what is going on and how do i want to live this life and what what really matters and and like i said earlier uh what we know from the biology and the neuroscience of compassion is that we human beings are built for compassion. We are at our, at our best when we are in that place.
1: Yeah, I, I, like, uh, I like ending there. Dom Vachon, thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the second installment of Covering Coronavirus from Notre Dame Stories. This podcast is produced by the Office of Public Affairs and Communications. I'm your host, Andy Fuller. We'll be back with our final episode of this series, and of the season, on May 15th. For now, we leave you with an original arrangement of When Irish Eyes Are Smiling, composed by Notre Dame student David Tran.